Well, good evening. It is good to see you on this, uh, what has turned out to be more of a early September kind of afternoon. Uh, it seemed like it was even warmer than that. It was uh, outside and I was talking with someone and they said, you know, it feels a little bit more like August. And I said, it does kind of feel a little bit more like August. And praise the Lord for uh, the opportunity to open up October the way that we have. I can't recall another October that has started out so beautiful as this one has, and we praise the Lord for that. Take your Bibles, if you will. We're turning to the very end of the book of Ruth. We have traversed all of its verses until the last section. For some of you, it may be the most exciting portion of the book of Ruth. Uh, for those of you who like genealogies, that is. Uh, for the rest of us, we say it's a genealogy. Why did we stop here? Why not just work all the way through? There's a lot we have to learn tonight in this genealogy. How many, and this is going to date all of you, so you can, you can decide to actually answer it or not, should you choose, uh, but how many of you remember Paul Harvey on the radio? Okay, so most of us remember. I remember Paul Harvey had a 50-year career on the radio, and my favorite was the one that he was known for the most, his radio show, The Rest of the Story. I remember... Uh, from a very young age, and, and I grieved. I never met Paul Harvey, I was, uh, but I grieved when he passed away uh, because I had spent so much time sitting next to my dad, and he had uh, a Ford F-150, and maybe it was an F-100, I don't remember when they changed the designation, but it was an old pickup that uh, didn't have power steering and uh, never did. It was not designed to have power steering. And it had just the bench seat there that you would sit on that bench seat. And it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't intended to be comfortable. It was meant to get you from point A to point B and probably with a load. <laughs> and so uh, that was the pickup that we were sitting in. And my dad would take me someplace on one of his adventures, whatever he was doing over the weekend. Or maybe I, was, I went to eat with him during the noon hour. And we would sit in that pickup, that old pickup, and we would listen to Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. And so we would spend time doing uh, that together. So uh, I was enthralled as a kid, and it just brings back great memories to me. And he tells the story of Dick and Alva, who worked together selling and repairing watches in the late 1800s. Before long, their business expanded, and they ventured into selling other items, eventually even printing a booklet and then a catalog, that, so they called it. And it was so that their clients could order without ever having to leave home. The early Amazon, for those of you who uh, don't remember ordering from catalogs. Dick and Alva even opened a few stores and they began to sell a variety of goods. Their business quickly flourished, but so did the debt. Alva became concerned that he might be held personally liable and uh, in the event that the company went bankrupt. And so he sold his shares, all of his shares to Dick in 1894 for a grand total of $20,000. The depression hits in 1907 and sales declined. Dick then would sell his shares to the company in 1909 for $10 million. Just 16 years later. And he would then retire. The name of the business remained the same. Both men's names 
were on the storefronts, even after Alva had sold his shares and then even after Dick had sold his. Dick would die in 1914, a multimillionaire, while Alva, though never poor, did not have the financial success of his former partner. His retirement was interrupted by the Great Depression, which led him to return to the company as sort of an icon, a historical icon, making heavily advertised visits as late as the early 1940s, actually, to stores across America that bore the name of these two men, Dick Sears and Alva Roebuck. Sears and Roebuck. And as Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. Isn't it fascinating to know the rest of the story? It is a wonderful thing for us to navigate through a text and, and come to the end of the book, but it's, it's a special thing for us to know the rest of the story. And that is what we have the opportunity to do this evening in the rest of the story. And then in the same way that we have dealt with our time in the Word of God together throughout this study in the book of Ruth, let us ask the Lord's blessing as we come to these last few verses to conclude the book and the study of Ruth. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you as those who uh, are captivated, even all these years later, uh, by the rest of the story. We want to know how and what would happen to Ruth and Boaz. How would they be used of you and what would happen to the future generations we marvel at what we have learned throughout the book. We have learned much of the kinsman redeemer, and tonight that becomes our focus in every way. And it is a special night as well as we take the moments that as a church family, we will practice an aspect of worship that is special, it is unique, it is captivating to our attention, and it is the very moment of the purchase price for our redemption. What a blessing it is for us to share communion as we close this book out. We thank you for this great privilege of looking back to the work of Christ, recognizing that it was done when Christ would spill his blood, our price would be paid, and that Christ's resurrection would go on to prove our own victory over sin and death, and we exalt you, we worship you, and we praise you because of those great truths. Tonight, as we dig into the text that is before us, we recognize that we may struggle as Westerners a little bit with the names. We may struggle with the comprehension of why it is important, but we praise you and thank you for what you are doing and how you have worked out all of the details for us, that your name would be glorified in the time that we can spend together. Lord, we ask that your word would be clearly understood, spoken with a boldness, and the conviction and leading of the Holy Spirit, and then received that we would be hearers who are not only hearers, but doers also. And we give you the glory and the honor for our time in your word tonight. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. We pray that you would bless it, that your name would be glorified in it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Looking back to verse 12 of chapter 4 in the book of Ruth, we I mentioned we would come back here. We've spent actually this being the third Sunday referring back to verse 12. Verse 12 says this, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So two weeks ago, we looked through this, and we 
recognize the blessing that was spoken upon Boaz as he became the kinsman redeemer. And so we didn't spend a lot of time then three weeks ago. Last week, we spent considerable time in verse 12. We went back to Genesis and we saw the entire accounts, the entire chapter of Genesis 35, looking through the account of Perez and how he was born and how he came to be. And so we've known a little bit of that story as well. But now we have the chance to understand and to begin to work towards an anticipated redeemer as we turn to the end of the book. We're still following the family of Perez, and we go to verse 18 where Samuel picks up on what he began in verse 12, and he begins to unpack it for us. And he unpacks it in a way that only those who like genealogy really like. He begins to give the family lines. But in doing so, there's a tremendous amount that we have to learn from it. There are two ways that we could take it tonight, really, and I could, I've, we're not going to go one of those ways. I debated all week long, there's enough information, we could keep going on in the book of Ruth. But we're going to end tonight, and we're going to end knowing that there's some pieces here that we could hammer on, and that is we could follow the genealogies. We could go all the way from Perez all the way to David. We could remind ourselves of the literal promises made in 2 Samuel 7 to David that a literal ruler would rule on the literal throne of a literal kingdom. That has not yet happened. We know that it will happen because the pages of Scripture reveal how it will take place. We also recognize then we could go to Jeremiah chapter 31. We could go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 31, We could go to Abraham's promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17. We could do all of that as God would orchestrate his plan through this genealogy, and we will in part, but not in depth, do that. Someday we will. But tonight, we want to spend time on the object, the reason why Samuel includes a genealogy in such a book as this. Why would Samuel, as he's writing down all of this historical information, suddenly stop, and before he says the end, he goes right into a genealogy? That's what we're going to study tonight. And so we begin in verse 18, and verse 18 says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Amadab, Amadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is where we spend our time this evening. And as you see in your bulletin, again, as we've done each week here through the study of Ruth, I've just given you the headline, the main point that we're going to be building off of to give you room to write. And I hope that there's a lot here to write as we begin to anticipate a Redeemer. The genealogy that is given to us provides to us the rest of the story. And I want to be careful. I've refrained from using story, the entire, the word story, the entire study of the book of Ruth, because this is not a a work of fiction. We recognize that the book of Ruth is literal events, actual events with a real-life Ruth, a real-life Naomi, and a real-life Boaz, and real-life other supporting characters. So when I use the word story tonight, recognize that I'm not using it in the fictitious way. I'm using it as the reference that 
we have kind of seen throughout the narrative. This is a historical event, and so it's a story passed from generation to generation, but it is historical. As we understand that truth, we first look into a word about genealogies, especially biblical genealogies. And this was a conversation I had actually with one of you who's in this room tonight. We discussed this early on in the book of Ruth, and that is how do we get Ruth and Boaz at this time? Well, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it is somewhat distracting. It is fascinating study, but it's a little bit beyond what we want to do tonight. But I want to say something to this. When we look at genealogies, we know because the pages have told us that Boaz is the son of Rahab. We know that because Solomon, or Solomon, depending on how you pronounce that, is evidently the father of Boaz. We know that to be true. And evidently the husband of Rahab. But is there pieces missing? Is there names not found here? And could there be, and it still be a literal account? Well, it's important that we understand that there are too many years, one side of this genealogy or the other. And it's likely that it comes on the front side. Now, I said that there's no reason, when we were studying through this, I said there's no reason to put it there by itself, and there's no reason to put it after there, but it is one of the two places. So we can really say that it was either before Boaz, so either Boaz was a great-grandson of Rahab or was a son, a grandson of Rahab, or there's perhaps other generations missing, or we could say it on the other side. Perhaps Boaz is a great-great-great-grandfather of David. It's most likely that he is the great-grandfather of David, so it fits more seemingly that there is more time between Rahab and Boaz than what the text would give to us. However, the text doesn't tell us. And so we could be on either side of that, and there is nothing wrong. In fact, we see the genealogies of the pages of Scripture, and we recognize there's probably some generations missing, I would say, with one exception. The genealogies that we find regarding the book of Genesis give us actual years. So when we look at the years, we know there's not an overlap or an underlap. There is a number of years. So even if there was a name missing, the year picks up and delineates the next generation that is to be followed. Why does Scripture uh, skip generations? Likely it skips generation for the sake of uh, making it concise. There was nothing specifically major that happened in some of these generations, and so they would have been skipped. However, does that give us room for millions of years in the book of Genesis or uh, some sort of a gap theory in the book of Genesis? And I would say absolutely not, because when we read through the genealogies, it, we... We read, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and when they were so many years old. And so there's a generation that gets passed all the way down, and there's a very literal number of years in the book of Genesis. But then that stops, and now we have no delineation of years, but family lines, familial lines. And it's the familial line that is important, and that's why, what we see here in this genealogy, in the one that leads us up to Boaz and the one that leads us away from Boaz. And so there's likely some names missing between, and I would say it's probably between Rahab and Boaz, but if you were to come to me afterward and say, Pastor, I disagree with you, I would say, okay, 
we don't know. We honestly don't know. Now, I will say, if you want to study this more, and this is something of a tremendous passion to you, I'm going to give you a podcast. You really should be listening to this podcast, by the way, not just for this reason, but it's a tremendous podcast for all kinds, especially Old Testament elements that we need to know. And the, the podcaster's name is Peter Gaiman, and spelled actually G-O-E-M-A-N, Peter Gaiman. And his podcast is The Bible Sojourner. The Bible Sojourner is a deep-level podcast. It's, there's tremendous information on there, and just a tremendous discussion recently on dispensationalism, and there's a tremendous discussion on Boaz and Ruth. And so if you want to know more about the genealogies, he has done a lot of that great work. He's an up-and-coming scholar. He's a professor at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. And I highly recommend that you get to know Peter Gaiman uh, through the Bible Sojourner. And so uh, if there's names skipped, we're okay with that. It doesn't change the fact that Boaz was of the line of Rahab and maybe not his, her direct son, but grandson perhaps or great-grandson, probably within that closeness of it. Boaz, though, as we move in, we begin to understand the focus, so that's not our focus tonight. As we look at the anticipated Redeemer, Boaz's role and function within this outline, within this genealogy, is that he gives to us a picture of a coming kinsman Redeemer. That's the point. That's why Samuel has added him to the, or added this genealogy of him to the end of the book, because it truly is the rest of the story. This is the fairy tale ending. If you're reading to your grandchildren or to your children and you've read to them a fairy tale and at the end it says the end and the prince and the princess get married and whatever it is that's going on in the fairy tale, we recognize that Ruth is, the book of Ruth has been set up in a similar format, all being historically accurate and true. And we would expect, because our Western mind puts us here, to end with the end. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It ends with a genealogy. It ends with great news for a people downcast at the end of the book of Judges. Boaz is a picture of our kinsman redeemer who has taken us into the family of God, this who is our kinsman redeemer, He's taken us into the family of God, and everything that belongs to him now belongs to his beloved bride, just as Boaz took Ruth and brought her into his home, and everything that was Boaz's became Ruth's. Can you imagine that conversation that took place in verse 13? We don't see it there because verse 13 is a quick rundown of these events, but it is included in the way that Samuel speaks in verse 13 and then in the ending with the genealogies. Can you imagine the transition in Ruth that night when Boaz would embrace her for perhaps the first time, his husband to his wife, and he tells her, everything that is mine is yours. It's a significant change from just a few verses earlier. And That is the significant build-up to this point. Ruth, remember, was told to sit still. That was Naomi's advice. Sit still and let Boaz do the work. And Boaz has completed that. He's taken her in 
as his wife, and everything that is his is hers. This is similar. In fact, it points us to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Write that verse down, 1 Peter 1, 4, which says, speaking of Christ, he has given us an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Your kinsman redeemer, if you know Christ as Savior, has embraced the bride, his bride, and given to us an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It will not fade away. The rest of the story is told in the Old Testament, or rather the New Testament description of the final kinsman redeemer. And so we're going to be bouncing back and forth a little bit here this evening. So before we wrap up the love story of Boaz and Ruth, we compare Ruth's kinsman redeemer with Christ our redeemer. And we're going to point out some similarities between Boaz and Christ. And we recognize that when we're done studying tonight, we then end the evening in the celebration of the Lord's table, which I can't imagine a more fitting end to the book of Ruth, and that we would focus in on our kinsman redeemer and the price that he paid for us. And so we continue then by looking into and understanding the kinsman, understanding the kinsman There are four elements that we're going to briefly look at in order for there to be a kinsman redeemer. They have to be kinsmen. And that's what we find here in the book of Ruth. That's part of the reason we're given this genealogy is it lists for us this line. It was Perez's line included another key figure in the book that we haven't talked much about for many weeks because we named him and studied him in the first chapter. His name was Elimelech. Elimelech was of the same line as Boaz was, and because Milan married Ruth, she's now been brought into that line, but with no children, this line is going, this portion of the line is going to die unless there is a kinsman who can redeem. And so the first element of understanding the kinsman redeemer is we must understand that they are kinsmen. And This one is the one, and it is only the kinsman who can truly become the kinsman redeemer. In order to meet the conditions of the law and to qualify to redeem the bride, the kinsman redeemer had to be related to the bride, a member of her clan. And so we recognize that Ruth is a a Moabite, but we also understand that because of her marriage into the family, the clan of Elimelech, and because there was no heir, she is now the only representative of the clan of Elimelech unless she would be redeemed by a close relative of Elimelech's. Likewise, Jesus became our relative, a member of the human race, in order to redeem us. He wore the sandals of humanity and he walked among us. In fact, as we begin to understand this truth, turn to the New Testament. We're coming back to Ruth, but turn to the New Testament. This is how John records it for us. So turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, and key verses, if you're memorizing key verses of the truth of who Christ is, or you're trying to understand great theological truths, you need to memorize John chapter 1, and specifically verse 1 and verse 14. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. Now we skip down to verse 14. It says, and the word, that is the word that we talked about in verse 1, that John talks about in verse 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a theme that Paul would pick up on as well in Philippians chapter 2, which we'll turn to later as we understand the kenosis passage of Christ. And John expresses it by relating to you and I that, to you and I, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is significant because if Christ did not take on the form of humanity, if he was not fully human, he would not be kinsman. But he is. Because he took on man, he took on humanity fully. Our kinsman redeemer is related to us. So Christ fits the first of the four comparisons. Second, and we're going to spend a few moments here, turn back to uh, the book of Ruth. We recognize in understanding this process all the way back to that midnight that was at the threshing floor, you remember, in our study, where we spent a few moments there where Ruth has come uh, to Boaz in the middle of the night and has insisted that he redeem her. In essence, it was the only time that was appropriate for a Jewish girl to ask a Jewish man to marry her. And that is what she does. And so she goes in chapter 3, and she lays out her case to Boaz. And then at the end of chapter 3, this is where Naomi tells her, how did it go? And Naomi then, moving in to chapter 4, Uh, We recognize Naomi is telling Ruth already to sit still. So Ruth has gone to Boaz and has asked him to be the kinsman. A kinsman could, as we recognize the unnamed Redeemer in the book of Ruth, they could refuse the request. The kinsman could say no. Nevertheless, Boaz affirms what Ruth is asking, knowing that there's another redeemer, and he voluntarily becomes her kinsman redeemer. Christ voluntarily became your kinsman redeemer. In order to understand the kinsman, the redeemer must be a volunteer. They must be a volunteer. Uh, We turn again to the New Testament. We've looked here in chapter 3. We understand what Ruth is uh, requesting. We understand through the genealogies that this is important because Elimelech's line is going to cease. And so Ruth is saying, I want this line to continue and I want it to be through Boaz. Boaz, will you do so? And Boaz becomes the voluntary kinsman, redeemer. Turn to 1 John. Turn to 1 John, as we see this spelled out for us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, where the Scripture says this. We can look here, and we recognize the significant statement of Boaz's love, but let's look at Christ. It says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is a voluntary act. He's submitting to the Father, 
but it is a voluntary act. And it is used as the way that we ought to love one another. That is how John is using it. He's reminding us of the voluntary elements of it. Turn back to the book of Hebrews chapter 12 as we get into a little more of the details. We understand that it's the love of Christ for us that motivated Christ to be our propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. And uh, such an important passage for us, uh, such an important Christological passage. The Scripture says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is it that Christ did voluntarily? He paid our price. And that is what we celebrate tonight as we gather around the Lord's table, as we celebrate communion together. It is mentioned here, it is given to us here that he is the author, the founder, your translation may say author and perfecter of the faith. He willfully went to the cross. And again, as we understand in Philippians chapter 2, we studied this in the morning service a few months ago, Philippians chapter 2, and we see these great truths where Christ would take on flesh, beginning in verse 8. Philippians chapter 2, the scripture there says this. Actually, let me back up to verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ chose to be obedient to a death that he did not deserve. For you. He voluntarily died for you. He voluntarily took on human form for you. Our Redeemer was willing. Boaz was willing to redeem Ruth. He was a relative, and he was willing. He was a volunteer. Jesus was willing. And being fully God and fully man, he was the flesh and blood that was required so that he would relate to humanity. And so he was one of us, and he was willing. The third element of a kinsman redeemer is that they must be willing to pay the required price. They must be willing to pay the required price. No matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, he had to be capable of buying Elimelech's land. He couldn't just say to the other kinsman redeemer, yes, I'm going to redeem Ruth, just give me the land and I'll make it work. In fact, if, if you'll just front me some money so I can get going, I'll owe you. There are no IOUs in the work of the kinsman redeemer. There are no loans in the work of the kinsman redeemer. In fact, he would not only be required, that is, Boaz and the settling of Naomi's estate through Ruth, he would not only be required to purchase the estate, but he would also be required to pay off any of the family's debts. So if there was still debt in Moab, Boaz had assumed that when he brought on as his wife Ruth. Redeeming the bride wasn't free. It cost dearly. 
It is interesting, as you study Jewish customs, especially the custom of the kinsman redeemer, it's interesting that the redeemer would pay everything off according to the Jewish custom. So let's take it a little bit further. If there was a member of the family, let us say that Naomi had sold herself into slavery to pay bills, then Boaz would have paid the price to set her free as required to be the kinsman redeemer. That's the depth. There was nothing left for Boaz to say, I'm going to leave this on the back burner and deal with later. The kinsman redeemer had to pay everything fully and completely, or they could not be, according to the law, the kinsman redeemer. Doesn't that fly in the face of all those who say that they can work for a portion of what Christ has done for us? The laws of the kinsman redeemer would not permit such an action. It was against the law of the kinsman redeemer. And it is important to note that not only has the price all been paid, but let us look at the price. Go again, as we are still here in the New Testament likely, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20 where the scripture says this, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. Beloved, you were bought. If you know Christ as Savior, your salvation was free to you. It is a free gift to you. It's by grace through faith. It is a free gift to you. But that doesn't mean that it came cheaply. That doesn't mean that it was on clearance or on sale. Christ paid the full price to purchase you, and he did so, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, by his blood. You were bought with a price. In Ephesians 1, 7, Paul says that the purchase price was the blood of Christ. For Boaz, every single legal claim of the law was paid. It had to be. For Christ's bride... Every debt of sin attached to his beloved's name, that is the church, was completely paid. The debt has been wiped off of the ledger. It's been removed. It's not held against us. We turn over to Colossians chapter 2 for just a moment. As we look here as well in Colossians chapter 2 verse 14... Colossians 2.14, the scripture says this. This is this being written off. And we'll back up to verse 13 first. And it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The believer should say, Amen to those verses, because it is your freedom that has been discussed there. It is because Christ paid the price with his blood that he then nailed to the cross all of our debts, and it was paid for. There wasn't any of it left. There wasn't some hidden closet that had a stack of bills that were remaining to be paid And that now you and I have to somehow participate in the purchase of them. 
Jesus was both willing and able to pay the redemption price. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's table tonight. Jesus was both willing and able to pay the redemption price. And there was only one. There was only one who could. And when he did, he settled our debt completely. Boaz did that for Ruth. Can you imagine the elation, the elements of being set free from debt, from gleaning, from scraping by off of the backs of others, all of that being removed as Naomi at the end of chapter 4 is bouncing her grandson on her knees. What a phenomenal picture of true redemptive love. Believer, why do we walk around as if we carry the weight of the world? When you have been redeemed, the debt has been paid. It's been paid in full. We do not, and Paul addresses this issue in the book of Romans, we do not sin more that grace may abound. That's our favorite Greek word, meganono, right? Megagonosko. May it never be, may it never be that we would sin more that grace may abound. But we recognize that as believers in Jesus Christ, pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness, pursuing purity, that we are those who are faithfully relieved of the weight of the debt that we owed. So let us not walk around like the ones who still hold the debt. Let us look up as we studied this morning. Let us be those who look to eternity with great joy, that our hope doesn't rest in whatever circumstantial elements of this world that are temporal impacts and influence us. One more element of comparison for the kinsman redeemer The Redeemer's provision for the bride must be comprehensive. It must be comprehensive. The provision of the Redeemer for the bride must be comprehensive. Boaz lifted Ruth to his high estate. She was no longer a Moabite widow. She was the bride of Boaz. She was made a legal partaker of his name. Her status was altered from alien to accepted. So also Christ has comprehensively raised our status. He did so because he moved you from sinner to saint if you know Christ as Savior. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you're still a sinner. You're still outcast. You're still lost. You're still an enemy. But if you do know Christ as Savior, your status has been moved from sinner to saint, from outcast to an heir, a child, from the lost to the found and redeemed, from an enemy to the bride. That is the comprehensive work of the provision of the Redeemer for you and I. 
So when we think of the kinsman redeemer, we recognize and we celebrate, and Samuel certainly does, he focuses, he takes the focus off of Ruth and Boaz, and he turns the focus to Naomi because it wasn't just Ruth, but it was also Naomi. And it was Naomi who was redeemed as well as Ruth by the redemption, the kinsman redeemer elements that was given to Ruth, Naomi participates in the blessings of that work. And she was raised in status as she bounces her grandson on her knees as well. And that is why she's blessed in all of Bethlehem. And so we come to this point as we bring it now to the end. (laughs) There's no end, though, from what we've learned. The way the book concludes, we begin to understand the genealogy's provisions. And this is where we highlight just a little bit of that other direction we could have taken with the genealogies. The genealogy's provision. The way the book of Ruth concludes, our Western minds might miss out on the incredible display of God's abounding provision for his people and for you and I. Remember the end of the book of Judges? Go back there. The very last verse in the book of Judges, we've been here a couple times already, but it is a deplorable condition as we come to Judges chapter 21, verse 25, and the scripture says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Boy, don't don't we feel as if we're going down that rabbit hole quickly? Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Don't call me by my assigned gender. Call me by my assumed gender. Don't call me by uh, this sexual orientation. Call me by this sexual orientation. We live in a world, and I used this term earlier this morning, and we're going to be building off of it in the weeks to come. I use the term, we are those who desire self-autonomy. We desire to be so enamored with ourselves that we do what is right in our own eyes. And no one dares to tell you that you're wrong. And we as Christians, while maybe not as flagrant, are just as guilty. We are often those who will say, well, don't challenge me by the word of God. Don't tell me what is right. Don't tell me what is wrong. That was what was going on in all of the neighbors of Ruth and Boaz. Everyone around them did what was right in their own eyes. And that was the culture that they lived in. During that same exact time period that mankind did what was right in their own eyes, the Lord was working out a plan for the King of kings and the Lord of lords to come as our kinsman redeemer. When we turn to the end of the book of Ruth, we recognize the times that this is written in. And when we come to verse 22, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David of Ruth chapter 4, verse 22. God made a provision for God's king to sit on the throne of God's people. 
At the end of the book of Ruth, there's no king, and everyone did, or at the end of the book of Judges, there's no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But God was at work to establish and to place his king, not man's king, that was Saul. His king, that was David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, he would promise to David the throne of David forever. And God does not renege on his promises. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The genealogies of Christ that go from Abraham through Rahab, through Boaz, through David to Jesus. The king who would sit on the line to rule over the line of David to rule over the people of Abraham. Luke's gospel giving the other elements. Matthew providing the right, the legal status to rule. Luke, in the genealogy that comes in Luke's gospel, providing us the bloodline to rule. Both were necessary. Both were different after Solomon's line. But all pointing back to the end of the book of Ruth. Because God would bring a kinsman redeemer for you and I through this line. So therefore, it's not the end. It's not the end. For the believer in Jesus, the end is not the end. For the bride of Christ, there will never be an end to our quote-unquote happily ever after. There will not be after the sunset and everything else, and they lived happily ever after the end. Doesn't happen for us. We believe by faith in our kinsman redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we cling to his promise of grace and mercy and love and purpose, knowing that one day we will enter the glory of heaven forever without end. And as I said, Paul Harvey would say it, and that's the rest of the story. And so thus we conclude our study in the book of Ruth. There's a lot more here. We spent a good bit of time studying the book of Ruth, but there's so much more here in this book. It is a familiar book to us, and I trust that you have become even more familiarized with it, more in love with your kinsman redeemer because of it as we've spent weeks together working our way through it. As we prepare to transition now, it is an important time for us. I'm going to close in a word of prayer, and I'm going to do so so that you have opportunity to do a couple things. One, uh, that you would have opportunity to regurgitate a little bit of what we have studied here as we join together in prayer. But two, that you would be preparing your heart, that you would come before this table in a manner worthy. We're going to highlight that again in just a moment as we reflect on our kinsman redeemer and the work that he did to purchase us and the way that he purchased us. And so as we prepare now to do that, take those extra few moments uh, right now as we close our time in the word of God together uh, to do that in preparation for your own heart. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, we come before you tonight as those who are enamored with this idea because it is foreign to us of the kinsman redeemer. 
It is foreign to us because culturally we don't participate in it, but it is not foreign to us in that spiritually we are part of it, that we have rejoiced because of the salvation that you have offered. And so first and foremost, we pray tonight that if there are any among us that do not yet know you as Savior, maybe these concepts have not sunk in that we have discussed tonight because they do not have the spiritual mind necessary. Maybe, maybe they've been in denial that they don't want to come to know Christ as Savior. Lord, either way, I pray that your spirit would be at work in their lives that tonight would be the night that they would surrender to their kinsman redeemer who has bought the price for them, who's paid it all, has not sought reimbursement, has not sought uh, for our participation in the work of the cross, and has not left anything for us to do in the work of the cross. I pray that they would accept then the free gift your spirit would convict them of those things and to receive the free gift that is salvation, that they would receive it by grace through faith, recognizing that even the repentance is an act of your great mercy and great love as they turn from sin and turn to Christ. Lord, we do also pray that tonight, if there are those in our midst that are struggling with faith and they have wrestled with this idea of kinsman redeemer that your spirit would comfort and guide and aid them as well in the great truths that we have studied in the book of Ruth. Where we praise you that the rest of the story is a story that never ends. A story that for the rest of eternity we will be completely taken, always passionately pursuing to know more of our redeemer. Lord, these are things that even the angelic world long to look into. They don't understand because it has not been given for them to receive salvation. And so in their longing, we see a thirst and anticipation, and we too thirst in the same way, seeking to understand why, seeking to understand how, but seeking ultimately to glorify you because of the work that was done. So Lord, now as we prepare our hearts to partake in the Lord's table, we pray that we would do so as those who glorify you, faithful to be not only hearers, but doers of your word for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.